This is Geek Gab with your host, Darnall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, February 22nd, 2020. And uh, you have no idea how close I came to saying 2018. And I, I, I think that's all your fault. What have I done this time? Oh, we were just trying to find... Okay, so it's partially my fault. We're just trying to find years for all the things that uh, we were going to talk about today. And and for some reason, all of those years started piling up at the front of my mouth. And I had to, you know, bash them out of the way and put out the right year. So I could, I could feel the wrong years ready to jump out. Well, <laughs> you, you worked it out. We're gonna. That's that's a pull quote. That's we're gonna use that clip uh, for our YouTube channel. All the all the wrong years were waiting to get out. I don't. <laughs> I, I can only imagine if I had said it was 1979, <laughs> <laughs> what people would have thought. Yes, this is Saturday, February twenty second, nineteen seventy nine, day three hundred and one of the hostage crisis. Tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree, folks, and get ready to vote Jimmy Carter out of office. <laughs> awesome Someone, show. You know, I, I get the feeling that a lot of people, especially podcasters, uh, would would do that. They would if they had a time machine. You know, everybody says go back and shoot Hitler or or whatever. Uh, but no, some people would just go back and podcast. Like here we are broadcasting from. 1979. Let's. What's it like out there? <laughs> well, there's long lines at the gas pump. There's uh, high inflation in the uh, in your paycheck, and uh, frankly, the clothes out there suck. They are ugly, 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 and uh, and we're going to be embarrassed by embarrassed by these clothes for decades to come. We're just praying Ronald Reagan comes along and saves us from fashion this particularly bad. It's Paisley, folks. Paisley. I don't know if you've ever seen actual Paisley in the wild, other than like, you know, in pictures and stuff. You ever seen somebody walking down the street in a Paisley suit? It is not a pretty sight, but that's what the 1979 is like. Fortunately, there's some good stuff on TV and great music on the radio because otherwise, man. This, uh, this decade was, the decade, the 1970s, were pretty much the closest thing you can get chronologically to um, clinical depression. I mean. That's unfortunate. Yeah. that It's an entire planet gone suicidal. That's what the 70s were. <laughs> they, they woke up from the 60s and said, what the hell was I doing? Uh, yeah, and and judging by the '80s, we had we had quite a course correction. Holy <laughs> cow! <laughs> I'm not sure correction is the right word. Um, so hey, hey to everybody listening live. We got a bunch of people in the chat. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, later, uh, I'm doing good. Daddy Warpig, uh, you you have got me up this morning. John, we have to do a show. It was like the scene from Baking Breaking Bad every season. John. We have to cook uh, because you have had a very th exciting themed week lined up. Is that right? Two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks. Yes. We missed last week. 
Yes, we did. Uh, I got caltropped. You got caltropped. That's messed up, man. I, I have gained a whole new appreciation for the humble caltrop. So you, you and we're not talking Legos. This is worse than Legos. Is there anything worse than Legos? Yeah, this was. Uh, I believe. I can't verify, but I believe it was a post earring. So it was small. Oh. Um. Uh, but it didn't. Caltrops were only big because they had to punch through the bottom of armor. And uh, when you're wearing bare feet, there is, uh, for most of us, there's barely any armor to mention. And uh, that thing punched through my foot. And you don't think about it until it doesn't heal for a couple of weeks. Oh, no. It, it just, it was agonizing. I had to go see doctors and stuff and... Uh, uh, the pain was very, very, and, and, and it sounds silly to say, because you look at the bottom of my foot, and it looks like this little dot. It looks like someone took the finest marker you can buy and just put, like, the finest red marker you can buy and put this little red dot on the bottom of my foot, but it wasn't. I got caltropped. It's uh, about half an inch deep in my foot, and you're walking out all the time, and it's not healing, and your body's all upset, and it's red and it's just excruciatingly painful, more painful than you'd imagine something that small to be. I'm not trying to complain folks. What I was actually trying to get to is I have gained a whole new appreciation for the humble caltrop because you're in a dungeon, right? You're walking along caltrops drop, you step on one and it punches into the bottom of your feet. Now here's the problem. And, and this is why you should send a very lavish Christmas gift to whatever cleric heals you. Whoever is in charge of restoring your healing, uh, your hit, hit points and closing up that wound, you should stay on their good side. Because you've got a big hole in your foot now, or a small hole in your foot now, and it doesn't matter which. And you're walking through this dungeon. And you've got just, <coughs> just on one side, you've got stagnant water, rocks with all kinds of slime and crap all over them, probably all kinds of effluvium and other poop. And then that's not even to mention all the nasty monsters that are there. You step in any of this. It gets inside the wound and gets infected. <coughs> Excuse me. Got a little cold today, folks. Um, and then all of a sudden you can't walk. Or your DM, your DM pulls something cockamamie like, well, you know that puddle you just stepped in? Well, it's got a bunch of tiny black puddings in it and now they're eating away at the inside of your foot <laughs> <laughs> i thought you were going to go the other way which is something woefully underused in most dungeon crawls which is simply disease and infection yeah yeah uh absolutely brutal um in fact the one time i 
I, I I hesitate to use this phrase, but the one time I scored a kill on my party, which was who was nigh unkillable, was due to an infection. Uh, they mm-hmm. just fail a saving throw, catch a disease, and dead before they could get the healing they need. Well, it happens. Um, yeah, the caltrops are no joke, man. Your feet are very, very sensitive. There, there is a lot of nerves pa- uh, packed into the bottom of your feet. They're very, very sensitive. And, and let me tell you this. Uh, seriously, this is something I found out. This is how sensitive your feet are. I've lived in this room where I am for almost three years now. I have walked across the exact same floor every day for three years. But it wasn't until my feet became inundated in pain that I noticed that the floor is uneven. That what in fact had happened in this room, this is one of those, originally one of those small houses, those two, three room houses built on giant concrete slabs, is they hadn't smoothed out the slab and then laid down the room, they just threw down carpet, apparently, just threw down carpet on top of the slab, and it's very, very um, uneven. There's like actual knobs of concrete and little uh, prickles and dips, and and I can only tell you this now because I'm very, very sensitive to every single inch of this, because if I step wrong, I get a jolt of pain right up my leg. Three years, never noticed that the floor was uneven. Couple of weeks with being caltropped. And I can tell you that this floor not only isn't even, but it's really, really uneven and painfully so. So caltrops are no joke and your feet are very sensitive and you get your foot taken out. You're, you're, you're useless in combat because you can't walk. The best thing you can do is sit in the back of a wagon and you can't even shoot a crossbow. Um, because reloading a crossbow typically takes uh, one of those uh, long reloaders, which you require to operate with your foot. It's... Uh, So again, I'm not trying to complain about my pain and get people to feel sorry for me. Uh, I wanted to take this in a direction where it's actually useful. You know, if you're a writer or or a game master or a player or something, man, getting Keltropped hurts like hell. I have uh, gained a whole new appreciation for it. So think about it. When you put it in a game or a story or something, how absolutely painful even tiny wounds to your feet are and how long, if someone has to keep moving and has to keep walking, that will never heal up. The only way that heals up is to get them off their feet, lying back, sitting down, and just let it heal for some period of time, or clerics. Come in and bless it and and, and heal it up. Um, very unpleasant um, very unpleasant situation. So, yeah, that's caltrops for you, folks. <clears throat> Don't mess with them. They hurt like a mother. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, Bradford Walker in the chat is is giving us the dark humor. Uh, have you ever considered cybernetic feet? <laughs> um, no, but I actually literally for an entire day um, was uh, was wishing that I could get my foot amputated. Wow, that that kind of pain. Now, I I I don't want to say that because. Well, I mean, and and that was one of the things when you told me about it earlier. I, I was I was concerned because, uh, you know, the specter of diabetes and and your foot not healing. I went, uh oh, that's that could go really, that could go really bad. And I'm thankful it didn't. So. And I know there are some, there's exactly one person in our audience who had to have their own foot amputated. So I'm, uh, I'm hesitant to broach that subject, but seriously, that's how bad the pain was. I'm like, if this doesn't stop, I just want them to cut it off because I'm, I'm done with this. All right, let's move on to something cheerful. Yeah, this is supposed to be a fun show, man. <laughs> I'm bringing us down. That sucks. Well, no, I, unfortunately, I think I think we're going to continue with the darkness because I believe today's theme is vampires. <clears throat> Did we lose? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> no, I had to turn off the mic to cough. Oh, I see. Because, like I said, I've got a cold. That that's the other great thing is you know, it's cold and flu season. Oh, hey, sorry, I'm going to do something serious too. They just uh, quarantined in their home 6,300 people in a town in California. And so I expect that we're going to see some more of that. Honestly, I don't think that this is going to be a huge disease in the U.S. We're not going to see a huge number of, of dead from this. But uh, I think we're going to see some of these quarantines be put in place. So for all everybody listening... I would recommend that this weekend or this week, if there's anything you need to prepare for, if you're going to be quarantined in your house for a week or up to a week or whatever, uh, go out and get it before everybody else panics and hits the store shelves. Um, I'm not an expert prepper. Uh, my mom is. My dad is. Several of my siblings are. Several of their spouses are. I'm not. Um, you may tell I have a great family around me, <laughs> um, whatever it is for you, you know, um, dried soup, uh, bottled water, whatever it is that will help you endure for a week or so, maybe two weeks, I don't know. And that will continue to be useful after or if the quarantine doesn't hit you or after the quarantine's over, uh, go out quietly, just pick it up, bring it home. If it's useful, if the quarantine doesn't hit you and it's still useful, you haven't wasted the money. If, But if the quarantine does hit you and you have it, then it'll be absolutely invaluable for you uh, and your family. Um, and if you get it now before people start panicking and grabbing it, it'll be cheaper and uh, you'll be guaranteed to get what you want. Um, 
So I, I would start get that before shortages start popping up. Um, now, I may be completely wrong. There may be no panic. There may be no shortages. This may just quietly go away. Um, but like I said, that's why you buy stuff that's useful anyway, because then you've just got a little bit extra of some stuff that's not perishable. So you'll just use it and, and you don't have to worry about it. Um, anyway, that's just a little bit of advice for me is uh, it's possible there's going to be more quarantines. If there are more quarantines, it's possible people are, you're going to need this stuff and it's possible people are going to panic and supplies like this are going to go fast. So just take a little bit of foresight and, and buy some things that are going to be useful to you anyway, just so you have them on hand in case this does happen. Be, you know, prepare, don't panic. That's, that's the motto here. I should go stock my fridge. <laughs> I, I truly don't think this is going to be the apocalypse. I mean, we've heard people talking about no, no. flu and things like that. But in Singapore, the number of new cases has dropped, is becoming fewer and fewer and fewer. So it looks like Singapore has gotten ahead of this. Uh, our good friend Ben Chia um, lives in Singapore, and he relayed that news last night. So... I think the United States can get ahead of this and keep ahead of this. I don't think we're going to be um, swamped, and I don't think we're going to be huge, uh, you know, I don't think this is going to be a huge pandemic that sweeps America. I think California might be in for a little bit more trouble than the rest of the country because of some structural issues in the state. I think uh, certain other places might also be, but you know, don't panic, and and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe even this mild caution and mild suggestion is is too too crazy, too out there. It proves to be too overblown, and that would be great if 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 what I'm saying right here is as mild and measured as it is, proves to be you know way too crazy. I was I was urging people to do stuff in a panic uh, by comparison to what actually happens. I just you know, do a couple of small things to make sure that you're prepared. And uh, that's uh, that's all I'm suggesting. Yes. Have I, <laughs> <laughs> Have I stunned, stunned you into silence? I am. I am stunned. <laughs> so. I've got nothing. I've got nothing to add. Listen to the war pig. Okay. Although, I mean, an anecdotally, we did have. Early on, we had one confirmed case uh, came into Washington State, uh, up in up in Everett, and uh, British Columbia and Washington, of course, have large Chinese populations, and we are not in panic. Like there haven't been any quarantines, we haven't had any uh, crazy outbreaks or everything like that. No, it, it's it's really bad, and we know that the numbers are are way higher than anybody is reporting because no one can trust any information coming out of China. But uh, it's, I don't think it's going to be a big deal. Um, and, uh, and that's it. That's uh, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, cases like this, people panic. Just get ahead of the panic. Okay. So, yes. Let me tell you what happened. I got shutter, which 
uh, we know about because I talked about that last time. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do with Shutter is because it's been my considered opinion for a long time that there's a lot of gold to be mined in the field of 70s horror specifically. Now, you can ask me why that decade specifically, because it's after the 60s, so kind of the limits were blown off on uh, violence and stuff like that, so that if you needed to for the story, you could show some jarring and... Um, you know, scary things, or, or not scary, jarring and gory things if you had to, which may or may not be scary depending on how you wrap them up in the story. Because um, it's always the story. The story is what drives the movie. If your story fails, your movie's going to fail. It, it may be pretty and awesome, but it'll be hollow at its core, and people will sense that. But yet at the same time, the rules, and I want to put that in capital letters, capital T, capital R, the rules of horror hadn't settled in yet. The what would become slasher movies in the 1980s had barely first begun in the 70s. And so we didn't have the rules that Scream would later mock or not mock, but, you know, be very self-aware of with The Last Girl and don't have sex or you die or whatever. 70s horror, uh, horror hadn't proven to be big profit-making, so there wasn't a lot, a super lot of money in it. So it was very, very low budget, which meant it was grimy, it was gritty, it lent a nasty, grungy feel to everything. So um, there's a very unique decade in the 70s of horror um, where these movies came out that were nasty almost, that they didn't have any rules, so you didn't know what would or wouldn't happen. There was a lot of experimentation with things that maybe to see what did work and what didn't work. Um, a lot of the limitations had been lifted off, so they had a lot more, um, they had a lot more uh, leeway into what they could do with the story. And frankly, uh, there was so much freedom for filmmakers. It was just this age of chaos, kind of this chaotic time where you could do anything. And so if, and eventually that would shake out. Eventually that would coalesce into the set of horror tropes that we know. But if what you want to do is to get back into that chaos, get back into that horror, see what worked and what didn't work, or just try to understand the horror genre. Man, my thesis, my belief is that the 70s is a good place to go back to because, uh, at least cinematically, because there's so much there that... Uh, and again, I am talking cinema specifically. I'm not talking about novels or stories or whatever. Because uh, it's just, it, it was a free-for-all for so many reasons. A very unusual decade. Um, so I, I wanted to, uh, once I got Shudder, I wanted to start watching uh, old 70s horror movies. I had a bunch of Giallo 
Uh, Giallo was an Italian genre of shock horror, uh, very, you know, out there. Man, the stuff they got away with in the 70s um, would cause uh, screeching and screams and fainting today. People would not be able to do them today and would not be able to stomach them today. Uh, they would be far too, the commissars of culture would be all over them, quash them like bugs. Uh, but there are plenty of uh, Italian giallo movies, um, and i just so excited. I was only, because of this aforementioned cow tropping, uh, only able to watch a few of them, and it turned out that almost all the ones I did watch were vampire movies. So I figured, hey, we'll do a vampire show today. The first one I watched, though, wasn't a vampire movie, but it is a perfect example of this nastiness, this this free-for-all. It's called Monster Humanoids from the Deep. It's by Roger Corman Pictures. Um, uh, do you know anything about Roger Corman? I'm drawing a blank. I know he, the name, but I don't recall. He made a career out of low-budget movies made very, very quickly that nevertheless uh, were made... He, he made quality. He concentrated on story uh, so that even though his special effects and costuming weren't, you know, absolute best, he couldn't lavish a lot of money on them. He always tried to deliver entertainment and story along with shocks. Um, monster humanoids from the deep. The very first thing that happens in that movie is a little kid gets chomped. Oh, no. Just right away. Bam. And that's like almost taboo nowadays. Right. Uh, does, it, does it happen off screen? Is it tastefully done or is it just, ah, uh, here's some gore? Um, well, it's not a... It is shocking, but I don't think it was gratuitous. Okay. Um, but it definitely crosses lines. And that's the point about 70s horror, man. 80s horror became kind of, in, in a lot of ways, not everything, but in a lot of ways became kind of a carnival ride where you got in the car and you rode along the rails and things would jump out at you, but you knew where you were safe. Uh, 70s horror was just like a rabid dog jumping through your front window. <laughs> wow. Because you did not know what would happen at that point. And this is just an example of it. Um, it's about humanoids who came up, um, who, who come down to this fishing town. Um, and... In order to mate and reproduce, because of the background of the story, they have to mate with human females. And so there are some uh, simulated sex scenes of aggressive interactions 
aggressive involuntary interactions between these humanoids and, and females, if you understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's two of them. So, yeah, there's nudity involved, um, and they force themselves on a couple of women to reproduce. That sounds unpleasant. So, yeah, it's, it's horror. It's horrifying. Um, there were no rules in the 70s. Now, I'm not going to go out here and try to defend this in a moral or religious sense. It's not my point. My point is, it was the 70s, and horror could go in all kinds of places and do all kinds of things to horrify you. It wasn't just about making people scared. Um, it was about making you revolted. It was about making you appalled, about making you about crossing boundaries, things like that. I'm not trying to get all, you know, fatuous and up my own arse about things. Because uh, I really am fumbling around trying to understand horror well. That's one of the reasons I'm doing this. But, man, I'm not saying I, you know, love things like that in cinema. But I am saying I love the freedom that they had. To shock people. I love the freedom that they had to push boundaries. I love the freedom that they had to horrify people. Um, so I've gotten myself in a morass, haven't I? <laughs> you, I'm going to let that one go. No, because I, I want to talk about The Last House on the Left. John Carpenter's movie from the 70s about a couple of girls who get kidnapped by hippies. A very shocking story, very much its own thing. Um, okay, the that you couldn't do today because it violates, it, it crosses so many boundaries of what should happen and what shouldn't happen in horror movies. I love that they had the freedom to do something like that. I, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original one, uh, again from the seventies. Or that era. And I love that they had the freedom to do something like that. I love that they had the freedom to do something wacky, like The Thirst, which is one of the movies that I wanted to discuss today. And we might as well do that now. The Thirst, completely mislabeled on the website, is about a lady who is kidnapped by a group of people who are all, uh, there's like 70,000 of them worldwide, and they are all convinced that by drinking blood, they can, uh, they're not vampires, they're humans, convinced that by drinking blood, they can stay young, gain power in the world, and uh, um, gain money. And so... They have set up these camps where they bring people in who go through the strictest of blood tests and they take them through 
uh, once a day, and they bleed them of their blood just like you would milk a cow. Hmm. And it's kind of wacky. It doesn't fit any genre. It's not like any other movie. It goes on for about 20 minutes too long, and the, they, the guy who made the movie missed the perfect ending by a country mile. The lady they kidnapped, by the way, is a many, many, many times descendant of Count Elizabeth Bathory. Um, but I love the fact that they had the freedom to try something like that. I mean, it didn't work perfectly, but they had the freedom to try something like that. Um, I think it's David Cronenberg, and, and I'm kind of fuzzy-headed because I'm really sick right now, uh, did a sort of, uh, or it might have been John Carpenter, did a sort of, uh, and I think it was called Rabbit. I'm, uh, I'm going to have to pause in my rant here. Did a sort of weird, yeah, 1977 Rabbit. Uh, David Cronenberg. I'm right. I saw it like almost a decade ago now. Uh, almost um, werewolf movie, but really, really um, strange. And it's almost a zombie movie, but it's it's completely its own thing. It's not like anything else. And he had the freedom to do whatever he wanted. So what I'm trying to say is not, it's just, I, the, the thing I love about 70s horror is that you're going to find so many things that are so bizarre, that are so unlike every other horror movie you've seen, because that decade didn't have the rules that every other, uh, that later decades have, have come to, you know, that have become cliches almost. Um, and, and I love the freedom they had and I love the horror that they were able to produce. So I, I want to go on and talk some more about the actual movies itself, but that's why I wanted to dive deep into the old horror movies of the seventies is because I want to, I want to drink in that, that freedom to shock the audience, that freedom to um take them to dark places where people you know kind of understood that and, and I I I from what I understand and I haven't done a deep dive on this so I will apologize if I have missed it um from what I understand horror wasn't necessarily big budget a you know, A-list movies, they were small movies shown on a double bill, the grindhouse thing that people talk about now, um, filling out weekends at theaters. And so they were meant to be shocking, meant to be uh, transgressive. I hate that word, but that's what they were meant to be. Um, but man, they're just some great 
It's a great look at the underpinnings of horror. It's a great look at how and why horror is made, how and why horror is built, what works and what doesn't work. And uh, I, I just, I love seeing how horror operates without any rules on it. And because it wasn't made in the 80s and 90s, I mean, you can say, oh, yeah, well, Rob Zombie does this stuff with, you know, he does these movies, House of a Thousand Corpses and Three from Hell and whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but he just goes too far. It's not that he doesn't have rules. It's not that he doesn't have limitations. I don't know. It, it, he doesn't seem to be operating with the same freedom that people in the 70s were operating from. Uh one of the other movies I, I saw is Daughters of Darkness, or one of the other movies I watched. Um, and in it, they had a husband who was a domineering type, but they weren't trying to make it a crusade like today's movies would, a, a feminist crusade. That was just who the character was. And I miss the freedom to make a character who's just a character without being a politicized archetype. Uh, and I think that imbibing of culture where people are free to make stuff that isn't a politicized archetype uh, kind of frees you up as a creator to make your own stuff where things are not a politicized archetype. Um, I've been talking for a long time. <laughs> uh, is there anything in the chat that I should pause and take a look at? Uh, which one was at Thirst? Did that take place in Montreal? Question from the chat. Um, <laughs> stumped you. It's in Europe. It, it didn't matter where it took place. didn't matter. Because uh, um, she was working in, or do you mean Rabid? Maybe Rabid. Rabid, I believe, took place in Montreal. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Rabid uh, that, took place in Montreal. Uh, that That's it. Everybody in chat is patiently enjoying your trip through the 70s it's awesome man <laughs> i have it's a question awesome yeah I, I, I have a question so i appreciate what you're saying about horror and and them having the freedom to shock and horrify their audiences which i guess is the point of horror uh, is there anything good in there do uh, do these stories end in any with any sort of satisfaction or at least catharsis uh, or is it all just uh, just dark and horrible and and miserable um well it was the 70s <laughs> <laughs> well it was the 70s um monster humanoids from the deep ends with uh Victory over the monsters, um, but then a, a twist ending sort of setting up a sequel bait, which is pretty traditional for horror now. Yeah, you that's know. that's standard. Um, 
and and by the way, I haven't talked about the two new ones yet. Those those the two new miniseries are kind of accepted, and I should get to those real quick. Um, Darters of Darkness does have kind of a downer ending. It's sad, um, and Thirst has a twist ending. A what a twist! I, I just oh, it's so painful. Thirst could have had the most perfect ending in the world. You have all these aristocrats gathered. This lady who's Bathory's many, many times granddaughter. They had to kidnap her and are trying to brainwash her into reawakening her familial thirst because they believe, and this cult would have worked so much better if they had gone whole hog and portrayed them truly as the kooks they are, as people who were absolutely convinced that they were sane and rational, but they just aren't. So they would have had to have been more fanatical, more wide-eyed, less in control, less, you know, ultimately rational. Um despite being wealthy and powerful and stuff, that they are just not checked into reality on this subject. And we know that people can develop kooky beliefs like this, right? Well, if I have a cup of blood, human blood, um, every so often, uh, it'll keep me young, it'll keep me, you know, make me rich and make me powerful. Okay. They needed them to be more fanatical, more wide-eyed and staring, more like other members of cults. Um, they kidnapped her because they firmly believed in their cult ways that she has a familial thirst. That it's, it's imprinted on her genetics because that's who her ancestor was, Elizabeth Bathory. And they had to brainwash her because she was adamant, absolutely adamant that she wasn't joining them, she hated them, she resisted them to the end. So they had to brainwash her finally into getting her to drink blood. And even up until the very end, when they have this gigantic ceremony, when they have one of their quote-unquote donors or cows lying on a table ready for her to drink his blood, uh, they put these silver vampire teeth in her mouth so she can bite and drink. She kept on snapping out of it, and they kept on having to recite to her, Destiny, Kate, it's your destiny. Now, what would have been the absolutely most perfect ending in the entire world would have been at that point when she bends down with her metal teeth and bites into his neck and starts sucking his blood is for those teeth to fall out and real vampire teeth to come out and her to start attacking them because they awoke the thirst. Everything they've been fighting for the entire movie Everything they've wanted, everything 
they have been abusing this poor woman to awaken in her. Everything they've been striving to get finally awoken what's there. And they were right. She has the thirst. But they don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in real vampires. They just believe that blood has this property. And they've tapped into something dark, ancient, supernatural, and evil. And now that it's awakened in her, it turns around and consumes them. And then, you know, the movie's over and you hear screams of carnage and, uh, and see blood splashing windows and stuff as they are consumed by that which they awoke. That's the perfect end to that movie. Justice being visited on these cultists, these nut barters. Um, and instead, the movie goes on for another 20 minutes and ends with this stupid twist. Uh, spoilers for a, what, 79? So 41-year-old movie? Spoilers for a 41-year-old movie. Uh, it goes on and on and on, and then finally it turns out that the entire movie, or most of it we've been watching, was actually, uh, it was a kind of an inception thing where it was even another layer of brainwashing, and she finally got brainwashed, yada, yada, yada. She wasn't really escaping, yada, yada. Kind of a dumb ending. Yeah, that, that sounds like a, an ending that someone thinks up wow that's clever and nobody yeah. nobody actually bothers to tell him that's really stupid um but i was eager for that other ending i was waiting for it i was like dude justice comes for the cultists that is an ending i was i was on my edge of my seat i was ready for that and then it didn't happen i'm like oh that sucks what are you people doing who wrote this crap? <laughs> Thanks to IMDb, we know who wrote this crap. Yeah. So, yeah, that that movie could have had that movie could have been epic if the story had been better. That movie could have been epic because that's a great tale, you know. Cultists, crazies, psychos, uh, kidnap a lady who had uh, she went to her uncle's farm for the summer. And she saw him slaughtering pigs. And they bring this out. This is an exposition. They bring this out. And the cultists are probing her like, what did you see? What did you think? What did you feel? She's like, I felt revulsion. I hated it. I ran away and they had them take me home. And they're saying, no, you didn't. You saw it. You loved it. It thrilled you. It excited you. And they're saying it was true. And you thirst for blood. And she's trying so hard to stay a moral woman, to stay away from drinking blood, to stay away from all these things. And they're just badgering her and badgering her and badgering her. And then at the end, when they finally break her, uh, break her down, she turns around and wipes them all out. That's a movie. That's a real freaking movie. That's a real freaking horror movie. Um, yep. And they get their comeuppance. I love it. Yeah. But that's that's not the route they went with. Uh, and that's why that movie uh, deservedly is 
uh, obscure. And by the way, the only way Shudder got me to watch that is by lying to me. <laughs> their, uh, uh, their synopsis on that movie was highly misleading. So, but it was a really weird movie, and it was nice not to know what the hell was going on. It was nice not to have any signposts. It was nice not knowing beat for beat what was going to happen in five minutes. Everything was bizarre. There were no rules. I didn't know what was going on. And uh, sure, it didn't succeed, but hey, they tried something brand new. Um, it was nice not having a screenwriter who just threw together uh, a series of well-worn tropes, uh, just followed all the rules. It, it, it was nice. So, yeah. Should That's we, it. Uh, That's all I got. <laughs> should we move on to the modern stuff? I'd like to hear your thoughts on the modern stuff. So, Age of the Living Dead. Oh, I can hear you typing away. Are you going to IMDb? I am. I am marking. I am marking the timestamps for our oh show notes. Um, do you remember several months ago I was talking about low budget? fantasy movies that had satisfied me because I knew exactly what they were when they when I went in. There was like five of them in a series. I knew exactly what they were going in, and I got exactly what I thought I would get, and therefore I was perfectly I was perfectly satisfied. Sure. Um, well, the actress from those movies is called Nicola Posner. I assume I may be pronouncing that wrong. And uh, she is the main actress in Age of the Living Dead. <laughs> I, I did not know this going in. Um, there was a trailer I watched, and I can't find it now, and I don't remember what it was for. But it was about vampires and humans fighting in the modern day, and some of the somebody was talking about setting up a bomb at a bank. So it was like vampires and humans fighting this terrorist or guerrilla war for society. No idea. Anybody in the crowd knows what it was. Please let me know. Um, so I've been kind of looking for that. And in my Efforts to find that, I stumbled across Age of the Living Dead and then V Wars, both of which actually land kind of close to what that reminds me of. Uh, or both of them land close to what that would have been, I think. In Age of the Living Dead, um, it, 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 it's ripping off, I can't decide. But I think it's ripping off Underworld, ripping off the world of darkness. 
But it's like those elders from Underworld, the vampire elders. Um, or, or maybe it's Blade, the elders from Blade. Like the first Blade movie, those Council, council of Elders that Deacon Frost wipes out. Right. Um, it's like those guys staged a revolution and an uprising and the virus got loose and uh, the vampires infected and took over the eastern third of America. And then humans control the western third of America and the middle third is a no man's land. Um, and it's a six episode mini series that is available on man, I'm so sick. I don't remember where I watched it on. It's available on an unnamed streaming service. Shrug. I think it was Amazon Prime. I'm 99.99% sure it's Amazon Prime. I'll just say it was Amazon Prime. So the uh, it's all about how these two nations now or factions are trying to fight to gain supremacy over the other. And I don't know what to say about it. It was okay. It was all right. It held my interest. It didn't blow my mind. It didn't blow my socks off. It held my interest. That's that's glowing praise, man. There was some genuine creativity involved in a couple of things. It wasn't all ripped off from other things. Um, the politics inside the vampire community were interesting ish <laughs> I mean it's not super great but yeah it was okay uh, did they do anything interesting with the vampire politics were there any uh, plot twists or betrayals or or anything or is it a straightforward there thriller? were plot twists and betrayals but they didn't revive they weren't They weren't shocking as far as being outside of what you would expect. You expect a bunch of vampires to be a nest of vipers, right? Sure. And they were a nest of vipers. So, I mean, when you have somebody who's trusted and they betray you, that's kind of a shocking revelation. But vampires, there's nobody who's trusted, so anybody can betray you at any time. So when someone does betray you, it's not really surprising. Um, and the the show doesn't take time to establish anybody as being particularly trustworthy on the vampire side. So none of the betrayals 
come out of nowhere because there's no loyalty built up. There's no expectations of loyalty. Everybody's disloyal, so none of it is shocking in that sense. Um, if you tell the audience that everybody's disloyal, then the audience is never going to be surprised when they betray their master because you knew there were a, a cold-hearted bastard from the beginning. Um, there was some genuine creativity involved in it. Um, and, and here's a little bit. Here's something I liked about it. Something creative. The humans are all um, jammed on the West Coast. There's about 150 million humans left, you find out. Um, there's walls built on, on the northern and southern borders. And China and Great Britain patrol the seas. Anybody who tries to leave America gets sunk or shot down or whatever. And then they quarantine the country. They jam all radio signals. Nobody can get leave. Nobody comes in. Everybody's just stuck there. They have absolutely locked the doors to America and thrown away the key. Now, eventually you get to see what's going on in the rest of the world, in London and things like that. And that's an interesting part. That's the interesting politics is the politics of the international community. And uh, when the prime minister of Great Britain decides to contact America, how fraught with tension that is and how much uh, other countries are going to be upset for him breaking the quarantine. Um, the politics are interesting in America because they have a functioning president. They have a president, um, but not much of a Congress. And they have you know, a functioning military, but very, very few resources. They have bases inside, violating the treaty, the uh, humans have bases inside uh, no man's land where they're not supposed to have militaries. And um, that's actually an interesting plot point. They're like, they're preparing. They know the vampires are going to um, come for them someday. So they're preparing for it. They're, they've built these underground bases and they're uh, their slapdash affairs made from buried um, reefer contain or buried connex containers, and and they're staffing them with people and bringing in supplies and trucks and and just getting ready for the day when the vampires are coming. Uh, they the treaty is built around the humans giving vampires uh, blood, and so everybody donates blood and they ship it to the vampires. Um, there are creative things in this series here and there. It's not startling original beginning to end, but there is some creativity on display and it was worth it to, to watch that creativity, watch those, you know, creative things about it play out over the course of the series. Hmm. So it, it's all of the things that are kind of typical that they borrowed from other people are typical that they borrowed from other people, but there was some creativity involved. They just didn't copy everybody else and do exactly what everybody else is doing. So yeah, that's something positive. And it's not like I'm even, you know, reaching for that. I mean, yeah, I liked some of the characters. They were fun to be with. Um, not all of them. Some of them got real tiresome, but some of the characters were fun to be with. And, uh, 
you know, I liked having them on stream. Well, it's it's kind of a bare minimum for an enjoyable series. You have yeah. to you have to enjoy the company that you're with. So That's, yeah. Uh, the rating it's got on IMDb is like 4.8. And I'd say about a 5 is, is pretty fair. I mean, that's a fair rating for it. It's not great. It's not terrible. You know, if the thought of watching humans and vampires play out sort of an apocalyptic scenario um, where the rest of the world has, has thrown the United States away. Uh, by the way, uh, apparently this uprising happened in other places, but the only one we're ever told about is Russia who apparently nuked their own territory to kill off the vampires so they could stay human-controlled, uh, which is a perfectly Russian thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> you could see the Russians doing that. That's a Russian thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they actually, they actually took some time and put some thought into, well, how did the international community work behind this? They didn't just, they weren't lazy. It's not a lazily made show. It's a low budget show. And maybe the people weren't the top tier of talent, but it wasn't a lazily made show. The people who are making it genuinely tried their best to make something entertaining. And that always has merit in and of itself. They may not have succeeded as much as people uh, who had more money or, or who had more talent, but they tried really hard and they they scored some successes in it. So that's Age of the Living Dead. All right. Um, the Wars. Uh, v Wars, huh? Yeah, it's a Netflix. And this time I'm absolutely for sure Netflix. It's on Netflix. If you have Netflix, you can go to Netflix and, and, and watch it on Netflix. 100% sure this time. Oh, that's a, that's a bad sign. Netflix doesn't have a good track record so far. It's uh, it's actually pretty good, but it's marred by one fatal flaw. Hmm. V Wars is based on a book series called V Wars. Shockingly enough, I bet you didn't see that coming. Blew my mind. The V Wars book series is about is a shared world book. Shared World Anthology, where one author set it up and a bunch of other authors write short stories set in the world and then you package them up in a, uh, in a paperback and sell them. Well, when you start this kind of thing, you have a story that sort of sets up the world. And the V-War series, season one, just feels like that first story stretched out to 10 episodes oh so typical netflix problem um it's the origin story of the setting uh yeah they they do this every time every series that i've seen uh they did the uh, same thing with man in the high cat was that amazon oh they're all the same yeah they're they're all the same stretching out a, a two-hour story into a 10 episode season yeah 
I mean, they could have done this story in like two or three episodes and then gone on to do other things. That yep. would have been awesome. <laughs> I'd have been so happy. Um, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm really not. I'm just saying that. I am. It's bad. <laughs> Seriously, if, if if that's what if that's what you have to say about it, not gonna not gonna mince words. It is not worth your time. If they did one of those things where they stretch out a story over ten episodes that should have been one or two, it's bad. <laughs> I, 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 I I eagerly await what to hear what redeeming qualities it may have. But those qualities aren't going to be enough, unless they end with and then they deposit ten thousand dollars in your checking account. Then then it becomes good again. Um, that is your challenge, Daddy Warpig. I'm not going to. I'm just going to tell you what good stuff there was about it. Okay. Um, the. It, it, it felt like just watching one of the Marvel series. Hmm. In that, in episode five, I even posted about this on Twitter. It's like, oh no, we hit the episode five doldrums where people are walking about on screen and talking and things are moving, but nothing's happening. The whole show is about subplots that spring up and play out, and then never really have an ending. Hmm. There are a lot of interesting ideas. There are a lot of creativity. Because the guy who wrote the book of V-Wars, who created the setting, is actually a good writer. He's actually an, uh, an, you know, a creative and interesting writer. But all that good stuff on the screen came from him. I'm willing to bet. Um, and I'm feeling weary. I just, I just want to talk about the good things right now. You can talk about, in fact, just stop at the good things. We already know this is not <laughs> worth anybody's time. This is a terrible show. Nobody should watch it. Watch it. So let's end on a positive note. Can you tell me the things that you liked about it? It was well acted. The show revolves around two characters who fought together in war uh, in Afghanistan um, and who have saved each other's lives, literally, like, you know, carried the, each other to medical care when they've been shot. Um, and they're very, very good friends. One of them is, uh, has a family. One of them is kind of a playboy, but they both have their expertise. They're both highly trained combat specialists. Um, one of them has gone on to uh, also be a research biologist. Uh, they're called to the North Pole because they've lost contact with somebody. They get there, he's disappeared, and there is some kind of uh, some kind of problem up there. When they get there, they both get infected with some uh, disease that nobody knows what it is. It turns out. And this was too much um, BS science for me. Um, apparently, there is a limit to my BS science, and and this skated right past it. 
Um, but putting the BS science aside, they discovered a biomass at the North Pole or at this Arctic station. It may not have been exactly at the North Pole, but it's in the Arctic. Um, buried in the ice for who knows how long. That is, if you contract this disease, it's like a really, really intense cold uh, that lasts longer. And you have some other genetic cofactor, then you get turned into a vampire. And the kind of vampire you are turned into uh, varies, although we only saw two kinds in this show. And so in the world of darkness, for example, one kind of vampire will turn you into the same kind of vampire, right? Sure. In this world, um, you can get affected by this thing and turn into a completely different kind of vampire because it's not dependent on the who's infecting you. It's dependent on your genetics. Okay. That makes sense. That's a nice twist on it. Yeah, see, it, it's got some creativity. Both of these shows have creativity put into them. They have creative elements, and, and that was, for me, a redeeming factor. It was interesting enough to keep me watching. Um, although, I admit, in the case of V-Wars, the main reason I kept watching is because I was thinking to myself, surely this is going to get better, and also, I'm going to review this on Geek Gab, therefore I will finish it. <laughs> Um, and so they bring it back and it turns out it's absurdly easy to spread. And so people start converting all over the place. Like literally, uh, they put it down to prions. Okay. Um, which are tiny misfolded proteins in your brain that cause, uh, bovine spongiform encephalography, which is mad cow disease. And also Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease in humans. Uh, and there's absolutely no way they can enter into your cells and change your genetics and also your body. That's just not how proteins work. But hey, no, we're putting the bad science aside. Um, the guy gives his bike to a bike uh, custom shop to get repaired. And because there are some prions on the surface of the bike, the one of the the people who tunes his bike up and gets it in, in perfect running order becomes a vampire. No bite, no blood, no nothing, just and so it's it's ridiculously easy to get infected with this thing. Uh, so the two friends, one of them becomes a vampire and the other one doesn't, and the tension in the rest of the show is between the one guy wanting to save his friend because he keeps on telling him, this isn't you. This is the disease. You know, you go psychotic when you're hungry. You black out. You can't even remember what you did. That's not you. That's the disease. Come and work with me. We'll find a cure and, and you won't have to worry about it. And then um, the other one who is kind of dragged into a leadership role with the vampires who are spreading and gathering and things like that. So the dynamic between the two is interesting. The two of them, uh, actually most of the cast does a good job acting. Um, and 
most of the characters are decent characters. None of them were as fun as some of the characters in Age of the Living Dead. <laughs> um, there's some genuine creativity with the vampires. Uh, they did some great action scenes, but there's no ending to oh. anything. Because they're setting up stuff, this blogger who shows up and is kind of key to a lot of important events, whose um, boyfriend who helps her run the blog gets killed by a government agency, um, which drives her to help the vampires, even though she's human, she doesn't have a climax. She's just kind of there on in the last episode. Um, this main character, this guy who accidentally gets turned into a vampire, who's patient zero, he just kind of disappears in the last episode, and he doesn't get a climax. Um, I can think of one character who definitely gets a climax to her arc. She gets turned by her sister, and she spends the entire show refusing to feed on people. Instead, she hunts down vampires and feeds on them. She turns in her sister to the government, but the government botches the operation, so her sister escapes. So she hunts down her sister and shoots her in the face and kills her. It's implied. So she gets a, a nice climax. Her character growth, character art, comes to an end. But really... Everybody else is just being set up for future shows or for future stories, whatever. And so all of the stuff we watched earlier, none of it turns out to matter in this series. It will only turn out to matter if they produce another season. And that's kind of frustrating and, and angering. Yeah, that's a shame, and, and it, it sounds like that's the reason for how long it is that they get a bunch of writers in the room. Instead of telling a story, they want to set up a, a mystery box series. Uh, is is it me? Is is it? I'm sure it's been said, but it has Lost just ruined episodic television for a generation? It has, hasn't it? I think it's partially lost, and I think it's partially that Netflix doesn't understand its own medium. I think Netflix doesn't understand streaming, and everybody else is copying Netflix, so they don't understand it either. Not really. They don't understand what movie serial... They don't understand that they need to be producing movie serials. Sure. Yes, uh, to cl something closer to what the Marvel movies did. They, you know, each tell a contained story. Yeah, I mean, you used to have movie serials like um, that were episodic, but each of them told an entirely separate story and then had something to link to the next story. Um, like the Buck Rogers, black and white Buck Rogers movies from 
the twenties and thirties and whatever the the short ones they used to show before the actual films. Uh, that's what Netflix needs to be, a self-contained story in an episode, but with subplots that continue through from the other stuff. They don't need to be, you know, a ten-hour movie. So that just leads to interminable subplots that never go anywhere. They need punctuation. They need things that have a definite start and a definite end so the audience feels satisfied, and then other things that continue. Stupid. Agreed. So never watch V-Wars, even though the acting's good and the ideas are interesting. I, uh, I enjoyed large parts of it. That's all I'm going to say. Cool. Well, speaking of having a definite beginning and a definite ending, I think we're just about out of time for today. Oh, yeah, we're way out of time. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention? No, that's it. Okay, uh, I'm also um, out. I would like to say that despite what it may have seemed like I was saying earlier, I am not endorsing fish monster sexual assault scenes in movies. <laughs> I am not endorsing that. I was just trying to say that I liked the freedom that horror movie directors had during the 70s. Ow. Also me. Uh, for my part, uh, it's been a pleasure, as usual. Thank you for uh, being a, a gracious and erudite co-host and thanks to everybody listening live and listening later it's been fun chatting about old horror movies and new schlock uh, and I hope to see you guys in the future thanks for everybody listening in right now um, we are taking off for today this has been Geek Gab for Saturday February 22nd 1979 we uh, are signing out for today but don't you worry don't you fret we will be back.